The revolution comes to an end as Bernie Sanders drops out of the race. Or has he? We will examine the strange and unconvincing way Bernie suspended his presidential campaign and try to figure out whether or not there's a future for the Sandernistas. Then President Trump smacks down the World Health Organization and China, but I repeat myself. And finally, the mailbag, all that and more. I'm Michael Knowles, and this is The Michael Knowles Show. Bernie Sanders has ended his presidential campaign. Or has he? Or did he? You know, one of the recurring features of the 2016 campaign is that long after Hillary Clinton had locked up the Democratic nomination, all the Bernie bros kept posting these articles like, one weird way that Bernie could still be the nominee. Or, you know, it's like mid-2018. One weird way Bernie could still win in 2016. Well, it turns out there actually is some weird way in which Bernie could get the nomination this time, or at least have a lot of power in the Democratic Party. Uh, Bernie isn't giving that up yet, and so his pulling out is a little questionable. We'll get to that in a second. First, I want to thank our friends at ZipRecruiter. You know, it's really nice right now to see so many great American companies doing everything that they can to help us get through this difficult time, unprecedented time in our country's history. ZipRecruiter is one of our longest standing advertising partners. We are really, really pleased to work with them. Today, they wanted to do something different uh, than the sort of type of stuff you're used to. So here's a message from our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Right now, we cannot be overwhelmed. We have to work to keep our loved ones safe and protect our communities. We have to work to stay strong, to stay connected, to stay focused. We have to work to inspire, to innovate, to build new solutions. But for all of this to work, we have to work together. At ZipRecruiter, we connect employers and people every day. But today is different. We're partnering with first responders, government officials, the medical community, the innovators in the manufacturing, transportation, and food distribution industries to make sure we're finding the right people for the right jobs right now. Let's work together. ZipRecruiter.com slash work together. Is the Sanders campaign really over? Well, Bernie says it is, so I guess we should take him at his word, right? Maybe. I'm not so sure. Here he is. We are now some 300 delegates behind Vice President Biden, and the path toward victory is virtually impossible. So while we are winning the ideological battle, and while we are winning the support of so many young people and working people throughout the country, I have concluded that this battle for the Democratic nomination will not be successful. And so today, I am announcing the suspension of my campaign. Okay, open and shut case. He says he's suspending his campaign. He's suspending his campaign. Except the thing with Bernie is, Bernie never just gives up. Bernie never just goes away. So as I'm listening to this, I'm just waiting for the turn, you know, the but, the however, the although in the, in the statement. And eventually, it comes because Bernie's dropping out of the race but he's not endorsing Joe Biden. He's not releasing his delegates to Joe Biden. And he doesn't even want to stop winning delegates in the Democratic primary. Sure doesn't sound quite like he's dropping out to me. Let me also say this. I will stay on the ballot in all remaining states and continue to gather delegates. While Vice President Biden will be the nominee, we must continue working to assemble as many delegates as possible at the Democratic Convention, where we will be able to exert significant influence over the party platform and other functions. Then together, standing united, we will go forward to defeat Donald Trump, the most dangerous president in modern American history. Bernie, Bernie, you scheming communist. Now we are going to be dropping out of the race uh, except we're going to continue to be on all of the ballots, and I encourage all of you to vote for me, and I want to get many more delegates. Uh, but the total, look, Joe Biden, he's totally going to be the nominee, right? But give me all the delegates, and uh, you know we'll see what happens at the convention. Okay, <laughs> not, not much of an endorsement of Joe Biden. What's going on here? Uh, well, a, a few things, I think. Bernie Sanders has never been the leading man, right? Bernie Sanders has always been the thorn in the side of Democrats. And so... It very well may, may be the case that 
Bernie Sanders is just going to try to build up his leverage and get some more delegates and then go to the convention and try to make them a little bit more socialist, though I, I suspect he won't succeed at that. However, I'm not totally convinced that that's the case. I'm not totally convinced Joe Biden is going to be the nominee. And from what Bernie says, it doesn't quite sound like that either. I think there's a lot of uncertainty now as to who the nominee is going to be. You know, I love that right now, Joe Biden is the only candidate left in the Democratic presidential race. And his old boss, Barack Obama, still hasn't endorsed him. It's very strange. You would expect Obama to endorse Joe Biden very early. Certainly would have expected him to endorse Joe Biden by the time he looked like he locked up the nomination. He hasn't even endorsed him now that he's the last guy in the race. And I think Bernie Sanders is looking at that. And I think the Democratic establishment is looking at that. And I think Andrew Cuomo in New York is looking at that. And they're saying, I don't know if Joe is going to be the guy. So Bernie Sanders is doing the responsible thing. It's kind of the PR move that he has to do to get out of the race, especially with coronavirus, because he's not allowed to campaign. He's not allowed to hold rallies. He's, cons he's considered to be imperiling people's health if he even encourages them to go out to vote. So he's kind of been backed into a corner here by the Democratic establishment and I guess by this coronavirus, and he, he can't really move one way or the other. So he's got to drop out, but he's dropping out without really dropping out. He's dropping out while still trying to have a lot of influence at the convention. In any case, no matter what Bernie's designs are, it does seem as though his campaign ultimately is over. You know, it's, it's headed for destruction. Does look as though Bernie's come to the end of the line of his career in American politics, which has now spanned five decades. And assuming all of that is true, I would just like to say Bernie Sanders is an anti-American old communist who has campaigned his entire life for an evil ideology that should be rejected by every decent human being. Everything Bernie has ever contributed to politics is evil, and we are all better off now that his career is over. And if I could spit on the grave of his campaign, I would do it. There. I just, you know, I wanted really to have a nice moment <laughs> to say goodbye to the Bernie campaign. I mean it. It's terrible. There's nothing good to say about it. His career has been awful. It has been a pox on American politics. The whole country would have been so much better off if that man had never run for any office in Burlington, Vermont, or elsewhere. And I'm very, very, very pleased to know that his career is over or soon to be over. Now, that means that as of now, the very likely uh, nominee is going to be Joe Biden. But it doesn't mean that Bernie Sanders has had no impact on the Democratic Party. You know, part of Bernie's uh, farewell, I guess, farewell to the troops, is to say even though we lost the electoral battle, we've actually won the ideological war. And I have to say, the sad fact is, Bernie's 50-year career has actually been somewhat effective, at least on changing the conversation within the Democratic Party. Good morning, and thank you very much for joining me. Uh, I want to express to each of you my deep gratitude for helping to create an unprecedented grassroots political campaign that has had a profound impact in changing our nation. It has. It has. Before Bernie Sanders really exploded in 2016, some of these radical socialist policies were simply unacceptable. The, the moniker socialist was unacceptable in American politics. Without Bernie Sanders, there's no way that you see AOC and Ilhan Omar and Rashida Tlaib and the whole squad and, and all the people who were avowedly socialist. You know, Bernie, when he became a senator in 2006, he was an independent, but he referred to himself as a socialist. This was so shocking to people. Now it's been normalized and actually the majority of young Americans identify as socialist, even though only 32% of them can actually define what socialism is. Still, that's a big sea change. Now, as of right now, Joe Biden will be the nominee. Biden is different than Bernie. Biden is not enraptured by a, an evil ideology. Joe Biden doesn't really have any kind of ideology at all. Joe Biden is an empty suit. He's just the kind of politician who wants his name on the post office. It is worth pointing out, though, that Joe Biden, for his perhaps ideological, I can't call it moderation, I could call it uh, rudderlessness, you know, he just doesn't really have any principles at all. Uh, for all of that, it's worth pointing out he's been wrong on just about everything for his 
also five decade career in politics. And a great recent example of this, because he's, you can go all the way back to the seventies and find things he was wrong on. But a great recent example is in 2011. Uh, In 2011, uh, Joe Biden was talking about the rise of China as one of the great geopolitical phenomenons of our lifetime. And now during coronavirus, during the trade war that we just recently had, the role of China is, is more important than any other role in foreign affairs. Joe Biden got China completely wrong. Remarkable, absolutely remarkable transformation. Even back then, it was clear that, that there was, uh, that great things were happening. And there was also a debate. There was a debate here in the United States, and quite frankly, throughout most of the West, is whether a rising China was in the interest of the United States and the wider world. As a young member of the Foreign Relations Committee, I wrote and I said, and I believe then what I believe now, that a rising China is a positive, positive development, not only for China, but for America and the world writ large. Is it possible that Joe Biden could have been more wrong about that? I know, now, he's not the only one who said this. A lot of people on the left said this. The, uh, some people on the right even said that. And it just wasn't true. A rising China has been absolutely devastating for the United States. It was a mistake. And the people who encouraged it were wrong and should be held accountable for it. They should not be elected president. But that's Joe Biden. And Joe Biden wasn't just wrong on China Then, Joe Biden was wrong on China as late as January and February of this year. Remember when President Trump closed up travel with China, Joe Biden accused him of xenophobia. He said it was terrible that during a pandemic in China, a pandemic that was caused by China, we would cut off travel from China. He has been so welcoming of China. He's been a China first politician in some ways, or at least China on an equal par with everybody else because a rising China is good for everybody, including the United States. And that was just dead wrong. This is Joe Biden, by the way, who fancies himself a foreign policy expert. We'll get to uh, some additional problems with that in just a second. First, I've got to thank our friends over at Wondery. You know, now is a great time to be listening to podcasts. Uh, One that I really love, I love hearing about the stories of some of America's greatest companies competing against one another. And that's why I want to tell you about a weekly podcast from Wondery called Business Wars. Each season digs deep into some of the greatest corporate rivalries of all time. Think Facebook versus Snapchat or Nike versus Adidas. On each episode, you will get an inside look at what has inspired entrepreneurs to take risks that drove their companies to new heights or into the ground. And at the end of today's show, after the credits, we're going to play a brief clip from Business Wars uh, season, Starbucks versus Duncan. Uh, In this clip, they will follow these two Java giants in a war that started brewing in the 1950s and is now hotter than ever. Coffee is a $100 billion plus global industry with these two duking it out at the top, but their battle is about more than coffee. So stick around after the show and uh, take a listen to that. Uh, you, uh, I think you really like it. And then afterward, you can obviously get it on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you are listening right now. Okay. So Joe Biden dead wrong on China. Joe, Joe Biden dead wrong on just about everything, including his own name, including where he is. Uh, but don't forget. I mean, I think it's easy to say now the biggest problem with Joe's campaign is that he's senile and he's, he's not the man he was 10 years ago. Even if he were the man he was 10 years ago, he is not the man for this moment. Okay. He's been so wrong on so many things. And the China issue is not going away because China has infiltrated international organizations all over the world. Okay. They've now infiltrated four of the largest international organizations on earth. No other country has come to dominate even more than one of them. And so China's made a big effort this way. One of the organizations that China has taken over is the World Health Organization. Uh, They've taken over the World Health Organization by installing one of their puppets to run the place. And that puppet is now paying off because that puppet is accusing, not so implicitly, Donald Trump of uh, causing more body bags in the coronavirus pandemic. And he's saying that if you at all raise any political questions about the World Health Organization, you too are going to be culpable for more death. Please don't politicize this virus. It exploits the differences you have at the national level. 
if you want to be exploited, and if you want to have many more body bags, then you do it. If you don't want many more body bags, then you refrain from politicizing it. It's like playing with fire. So more than ever before, national unity is important if we care about our people, if we care about our citizens. Please, unity at national level. No using COVID for political punches. And then second, honest solidarity at global level and honest leadership from the US and China. We shouldn't waste time pointing fingers. You know, it's very convenient that the people responsible for this pandemic are the ones encouraging us not to point fingers. It's very convenient that China, which caused the pandemic entirely, if China had acted just three weeks earlier, studies show 95% of the spread would not have happened. If they'd acted even one week earlier, 66% of the spread would not have happened. China, solely responsible for this, they don't want us to point fingers. The World Health Organization, which is now a mouthpiece for China, they don't want us to point fingers. Come on, we need honest leadership from the U.S. and China too, but really the U.S., they're being so dishonest. Most important thing to understand this statement from the World Health Organization director is that that punk is a propagandist for the Chinese Communist Party. Okay, his name is Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. I'm totally mispronouncing that, but whatever. He's the World Health Organization Director General. China worked tirelessly behind the scenes, to quote news reports at the time, to have that guy installed. That guy worked, before he went to the WHO, he worked in the government of the Marxist Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front. Uh, That regime was a notorious regime, notorious for torture, repression, and stealing elections. And while this man was the health minister over there, he was responsible for covering up three cholera outbreaks. This is a bad hombre. He's not an honest actor. He's not acting in good faith. He's a mouthpiece for Chinese communists. You know, the line we've heard the whole time from the left with this pandemic is, if you question them, if you question the experts, if you question the politicians, you are responsible for more people dying. For their politics, you know, if you you question Donald Trump, that makes you a patriot. But if you question their guys, then you are responsible for more people dying. Obviously, the WHO is using the same line. Uh, Chinese communists generally are very good at exploiting American political divisions. They've been good at that for a long time. So President Trump now responds to the World Health Organization uh, because... The prompting event for why they're even going after the U.S. right now is the U.S. is threatening to cut funding. So does Donald Trump back down? I don't think so. The head of the World Health Organization today uh, warned against politicizing. I agree with that. uh, And he said that 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 consequence of this politicization could actually create more body bags. It's a pretty vivid image. I mean, what... uh, what do you believe the consequences of the U.S. pulling out its funding of the WHO? Well, I think when you say more body bags, I think we would have done, uh, and he would have been much better serving the people that he's supposed to serve if they gave a correct analysis. I mean, everything was, I said, China-centric. Everything was going to be fine, no human to human, uh, keep the borders open. He wanted me to keep the borders open. I closed the borders despite him. And that was a hard decision to make at the time. We were all together. We made a decision against the World Health Organization. So when he says politicizing, he's politicizing. That shouldn't be. But look, we spend $450 billion, $452 billion, almost $500 billion last year, hundreds of billions in previous years. And... Uh, they got to do better than that. They got to do better. When you talk about uh, politics, I can't believe he's talking about politics when look at the relationship they have to China. So China spends 42 million, we spend 450 million, and everything seems to be China's way. That's not right. It's not fair to us. And honestly, it's not fair to the world. Who's politicizing the virus 
It's not us. Okay. It's the World Health Organization primarily and all of their lackeys and China. The World Health Organization didn't lift a finger to stop this pandemic until February. Okay. We knew that this was in China now as early as October, but WHO didn't do that. Then when the the WHO acted, do you know what they did? They finally sent a couple experts months and months later. And then their biggest campaign was to get people to stop calling it the Chinese coronavirus. Their biggest campaign was not a medical campaign to stop the pandemic. It was a PR campaign for China. And now WHO says, don't politicize the virus. They're accusing Trump of filling up body bags because he would have the audacity to, to question our vaunted Marxist leaders at the WHO and in China. I don't think so. Okay. Uh, this is the perfect time to be criticizing the WHO and it's a perfect time to defund them as well. Uh, we've got to get to Ellen DeGeneres. I know Ellen doesn't f- feature into our show very much, but Ellen is getting in a lot of trouble on the left and the right. And I think we've got to defend her. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Then we'll get to why the models turned out to be so wrong and what we can do about that. First, I got to thank our friends over at Rock Auto. If your car is having trouble, Oh man, is Rock Auto a godsend right now? Very difficult to go to brick and mortar these days. RockAuto.com is so much easier than walking into a store and then someone demanding quick answers to things like, hey, is your Odyssey an LX or an EX? And then they usually just have to order the part online anyway. They probably go to RockAuto.com and then they charge you twice as much. If you have the internet, you have access to RockAuto.com at your desk and in your pocket. The RockAuto.com catalog is unique and remarkably easy to navigate. So easy to navigate that even I can navigate it. Okay. Rockauto.com always offers the lowest prices possible. It's not changing them all the time based on gimmicks or, you know, kind of like airlines, not changing the prices all the time. Why spend up to twice as much for the same parts? Go to rockauto.com right now, see all the parts available for your car or truck, and then write Knowles, K-N-O-W-L-E-S in there. How did you hear about us box? And they will know that we sent you and you will be sure to get the best parts for your car or truck, rockauto.com. All right. Ellen is in trouble. Ellen is in trouble because she's broadcasting from her home right now, just like a lot of people on TV are. They've had home studios set up. And so she's broadcasting from there, but she got in trouble because she said this whole quarantine feels really bad. It actually feels like you're in jail. Thing that I've learned from being in quarantine is that people, uh, this, this is like being in jail is what it is. It's uh, mostly because I've been wearing the same clothes for 10 days and everyone in here is gay. <laughs> the jokes that I have. Uh, I feel bad for the kids at home, uh, all the college students, uh, all the parents. I feel bad for a lot of people, but I think that a lot of people out there need words of encouragement and that's what I want to do. I want to spread light where there's shade. Okay. First of all, great joke. It's a very funny joke, right? Because I haven't changed my clothes in 10 days and everyone in here is gay. (laughs) But but the point she's making is true as well. The point was a setup for a joke, so she should get leeway anyway. But the point she's making is true, which is in part why the joke is funny. It feels like we're in jail. A lot of people responded to this. They said, I've served time and jail's nothing like your multi-million dollar house. You don't know nothing about jail. You're so out of touch. No, it is like jail. Okay, and I think the, the critics of Ellen right now are confused because they think that the defining feature of jail is how nice the beds are or, you know, how big the windows are. That's not the defining feature of jail. The defining feature of jail is whether or not you're allowed to leave. Okay, and increasingly, we are not allowed to leave our homes. In LA, they've just said, if you leave your home without a face mask on, you're going to be in trouble with the government. In Hamilton County, Ohio, we talked about this one yesterday. There is a prosecutor out there who is charging people with felonious assault if they leave their homes. We are, for all intents and purposes, in certain parts of this country, in jail right now. And we might be in jail with golden handcuffs. We might be in jail with nice you know, amenities and luxury. But it doesn't matter how much luxury you've got if you're not free to leave. And so it's a very good point made by Ellen and a pretty funny joke as well. And, you know, I think people should just lay off her. I think she's, she's saying the right things when a lot of people around here are saying the wrong things. Uh, now we've got to get back to Joe Biden because another television personality, Whoopi Goldberg, has made a major faux pas and it just shows you what to expect for the next several months as we plod our way to November. 
the fawning, the praise, the absolute ignorance is not just true of Whoopi. It's typical of a lot of people on the left. Whoopi Goldberg has an idea for the Biden administration. The Biden administration, he'll pick his vice president and his cabinet, but the Surgeon General obviously should be none other than Dr. Jill Biden. The, the word doctor is right there in her name. I'm hoping yeah. Dr. Jill becomes the Surgeon General. His wife. Yeah, Joe Biden's wife, because she, you know, she he would too. never do it, but she, it, yeah, she's a hell of a doctor. She's an amazing doctor. I she's a doctor like, and PhD. Yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't, oh, I, don't I could know. be wrong. Maybe I thought she was yeah, a I think she, I she's, she's oh. a teacher, but, you know, might, might be good for Betsy DeVos's post. Oh, that's so awkward because it's not awkward that she got the doctor thing wrong. It is very confusing that people who are teachers go by doctor and people who are physicians go by doctor. And it's especially confusing because we think that physicians are the real doctors, but the word doctor actually means teacher. It comes from the Latin docere. So anyway, I understand that it's complicated with the title. What gets Whoopi in trouble is she goes, oh yeah, Jill, she's an amazing doctor. Oh, she's an amazing doctor. Of course she should be Surgeon General. Then we find out Whoopi doesn't know, first of all, anything about Joe Biden's career. She doesn't even know what Joe Biden does as a career. Joe Biden has a doctorate in education. She's not a doctor of medicine. She's not a PhD in English or history. She's a doctor of education. She's a teacher of teaching. She'd be an amazing uh, Surgeon General. This is what we're going to hear now until November, is everything Joe Biden ever did is wonderful. Everything Joe Biden ever did is wonderful. Probably everything Hunter Biden ever did is wonderful. They've already gotten to that point in the New York Times, giving him fawning profiles for his artwork while he's refusing to pay child support on his last most recent kid. Not the most recent one, but the last most recent one. That's what you can expect. uh, And we should be able to see very clearly what's going on with Joe Biden. We should be able to see very clearly what's going on in our national pandemic as well. And as you know, increasingly, we're not allowed to question anything that's going on. Well, Dr. Burks gave us a little bit of truth yesterday during the White House press briefing on the coronavirus, because you remember we were told 2 million Americans are going to die, maybe more. Then they downgraded it, then they downgraded it, then they downgraded it. So right now, Dr. Burks is essentially admitting that the models were wrong. I think all of you, many of you have done the analysis of the same models that we utilized. Um, And if you do the models of the models, you end up with that range. Um, At the same time, we carefully looked at Italy and Spain, and we are doing much better in many cases than several other countries. And we're trying to understand that. We believe that our healthcare delivery system in the United States is quite extraordinary. I know many of you are watching the ACNOW model and the IHME model from, and they have consistently decreased the number, the mortality from over almost 90,000 or 86,000 down to 81,000 and now down to 61,000. That is modeled on what America is doing. You know, I hate to say I told you so. You know, I hate to do that, but I told you so. Early on, we heard numbers, 2 million, 1 million, then it got revised down. But when we heard those 2 million numbers, I said that that was almost certainly not true, right? Then we heard revised down numbers, 500,000, 400. I I said at the time, almost certainly not true. Then we heard America's going to be just like Italy. We're going to be hit just as hard. We might be hit harder. When that happened, I said, "Mm, that is probably not true because Italy has the second oldest population in the world. They greet each other by kissing and everybody smokes and they haven't had a functioning government since Octavian. Remember I said that, and people attacked me on the left and the right. People on the right too, they said, oh, we're going to be Italy in two days, where it's going to be exactly like Italy. The hospitals are going to be completely overrun. It's going to be a disaster. You're going to see hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Americans die. Guess what? Turns out I was right. And uh, the skeptics were right. It's not just me. There were many other people who were skeptical of these models that had us all shut down the entire government. And one thing that's worth pointing out here, because what you're going to hear from now until eternity is nobody taking any responsibility here. What you're going to hear is right. It would have been 2 million if we hadn't social distanced. Oh yeah. If it would have been 2 million, if we hadn't shut down the global economy, there's no evidence of that. Okay. 
Perhaps not the initial models, but all the models we've seen after that were taking into account the measures that the United States was taking. The social distancing, the shutdown, the hand washing, the stupid masks. It was taking into account all of that, okay? And the models were still outrageously hyperbolic. Somebody ought to be held responsible for this. And I don't even mean to hold the experts responsible. The experts are just doing what experts do, which is get things wrong, okay? The epidemiologists were just doing what epidemiologists do, which is get things wrong. Epidemiology is nearly as fake a science as climatology, okay? It is an imprecise science that's based on predicting the future, which nobody can do. The people we've got to hold responsible are the politicians who were so hyperbolic who overreacted, who leapt to shut everything down. Because now we are hearing from the vaunted experts themselves that the hysterical alarmists were wrong and the skeptics were right. Got so much more to get to, including the mailbag, but first I got to thank our friends over at LifeLock. You know, there are some people out there who seem like they're prepared for anything, right? They've got, you know, they've got everything prepared. I'm not one of those people, okay? But you know them. We all know them. If you have a cut, they'll give you a Band-Aid. If you need a battery, they will have multiple sizes on hand, AAA, AA. If they're worried about identity theft, well, they'll only monitor their credit, which just isn't enough, okay? Branches seem, breaches rather, breaches seem like they're happening more and more these days. And with your breached information, like, I don't know, your name, your social security number, more, criminals can commit identity theft. And there are a lot of breaches going on, especially around tax time, when you're sending your information all over the place. Join LifeLock today, okay? No one can prevent and identify theft. uh, No one can prevent all identity theft or monitor all transactions at all businesses. But with breaches on the rise, doesn't it make sense to be prepared? Join LifeLock. You get up to 25% off your first year. Go to LifeLock.com slash Knowles, K-N-W-L-E-S. That's LifeLock.com slash Knowles to save 25%. If you're a Daily Wire subscriber, go check out the All Access show. It's great. I did one last night. It's initially for All Access members. We're doing it now for all members because we're just quarantined. It's a fun show. We hang out for an hour. We do it all the time at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. If you haven't joined, go do that right now. Dailywire.com slash subscribe. We'll be right back with the mailbag and with a quick clip from a chat I had with my friend Glenn Beck. We've got to get to the mailbag, but first I want to play just a short clip of an interview I had with my friend Glenn Beck. We're going to post the whole interview on YouTube, but I wanted to chat with him because one, whenever we're in actual catastrophes, Glenn is like the, a prophet. He is the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, and he's really good on issues of monetary policy, on explaining the Federal Reserve. A lot of the issues that are going on right now that people aren't talking about because they're not the top line of the pandemic. So he gets into that and also very importantly, Glenn Beck has a new book coming out, Arguing with Socialists. This is in the vein of my favorite book he ever wrote called Arguing with Idiots, which is absolutely terrific if you haven't read it yet. And Arguing with Socialists is really great too. So for just a couple minutes here, here is my friend, Glenn Beck. The Fed controls that by how much they, how much, how many dollars they print right now they are taking and stealing your savings hmm. by inflating the dollar. You won't be able to buy as much as you could just a few weeks ago very, very soon. So it punishes people who save Well, and, we, we and see, play by the rules. We see this kind of innumeracy, you know, this just inability to keep track of numbers playing out in some of the characters in your book. And I fear now that we're talking about $2 trillion stimulus, and then the Fed's going to lever that up to $6 trillion in lending. And when we're talking these huge numbers, that people are going to lose sight of what that means, the value of a dollar, maybe, you know, the AOC Green New Deal is $93 trillion by some estimates over 10 years. But you know, that's, that means it's what $9.3 trillion each year. We're already talking about $10 trillion proposals. Uh, Is there a way that we get out of this? And I know you talk about eco-socialism in the book. Is there a way we get out of the coronavirus and the left says, look, we can raise the money. We just saw it last week. Why can't we have the green new deal today? 
the reason why they're saying six trillion dollars is that you remember that two trillion that we've just passed yeah. was actually six trillion because the Federal Reserve put in another four trillion dollars that they don't have. Right. They just printed. The way to get out of that is to do modern monetary theory. It is why if you read the last chapter, you'll understand it. It is really why the socialists have come up with it and why they love it so much. Because they don't need to tax anybody. They don't need to talk about raising income tax. They don't have to worry about how we're going to pay for it. You see the printing press over there? All we do is turn that on. That's how we pay for it. That's modern monetary theory. It is so crazy because it is the simplest idea. What, if you just say it's valued at that, then it's valued at that. Then why didn't every king and every dictator in the history of the world come up with that? They did. It doesn't work. It doesn't That's work. Why. And they keep pushing it. And it, I mean, this ties in more broadly with the popularity of socialism, because there was this very scary study came out about a year ago, which said that over half of young Americans now identify as socialists. And that's the bad news. But the good news is only about 32% can explain what socialism is. So the popularity of socialism now, is this a matter of the idea being really new and hot and sexy, or is it just a matter of ignorance? I think there's a couple of things. Um, um, one, if you look at somebody your age, how old are you, Michael? I am. I just turned 30. I'm officially an adult by today's standards. Okay. All right. So you remember... Uh, you were 10 at around September 11th, right? Yeah. Okay. So September 11th happened and your memories of that is it was a shock. Everybody was freaking out. The stock market collapsed and they closed it down and maybe people lost money and they lost their jobs. Then your next big memory is 2008. Right. where the banks went crazy, you lost a lot of money, nobody had jobs. Now your next one is this. Yeah. When nobody had jobs, money was tight, you couldn't get a loan, people were getting richer because the government... This is a system that if you are 30 years old, you've never seen this system work right. Huh. You've never seen this system provide any kind of stability. And you're looking at your parents and you're like, my dad just lost his job. They lost everything. He was just starting to turn it around and he lost everything. This is ridiculous. I don't want this. But they've never seen they've never seen actual socialism. There's a whole chapter on Sweden and Finland and Iceland and all these socialist countries. They are not socialist countries. Yeah. They are capitalist countries more free than we are. Fewer regulation on business than we have by a great deal. Uh, so they're more free. They, it is easier for you to start your own business. Uh, three out of the five have lower taxes on corporations than we do. Um, they have a big safety net. Well, that's not bad. That's not socialism. That's a safety net. Mm -hmm. All right. We'll get to the rest of that interview over on YouTube so you can go check that out. But Glenn, always so interesting, especially on those kind of topics. And the book is Arguing with Socialists. Let's get to the mailbag. I'm going to fly through these. Okay. This is going to be a speed round from Martin. Hi, Michael. What will the government ask the Chinese Communist Party in regards to a compensation damages packages for bereaved families? Uh, and the destroyed livelihoods due to its gross negligence. If negligence occurred in corporate or the company or a company private sector, and I'm not sure what this wording is here, uh, wouldn't they be charged with manslaughter? Very possibly they would, but international relations is not just the private market. And we're in a very difficult situation right now because our largest creditor is China. China has bought up so much of our debt. We've also outsourced all of our manufacturing to China. So China, in some ways, has us in an unfortunate grip. The people who su suggested that we do all that told us, oh, there's no big deal. You can outsource all of your manufacturing. It'll, you'll get cheap consumer products. It's a win-win. There's no reason ever to put any barrier up to trade. It's just a win-win. Now we're seeing the national security implications of that. The, the way out in the short term is to disentangle ourselves from China. We, we won't be able to talk at all about punishment or compensation until we do that. Unfortunately, that's what President Trump ran on. And it's what he's been uh, starting to do uh, in the first term. And hopefully he'll complete in the second term. From Timmer, 
Hi, Michael. I really enjoy watching your show and the reasoning you give behind a lot of issues. One question I had, do you think this nasty Chinese virus originated from eating bats or from a Wuhan lab from which it accidentally or not accidentally escaped? Thank you very much. I think that it's very possible the virus began in nature, but I think that there are a lot of ties linking the virus to that laboratory in Wuhan. There are a lot of questions about how the bat that the bats that were infected could even have gotten to the Wuhan wet market. I suspect that the Chinese government played a much larger role in this than people are letting on. From Brian, hi Michael, there's a huge issue that is being raised in evangelical circles right now that I'm wondering if you can address. It's the idea of corporate sin. These days, there's a lot of talk about how on top of our individual sins, we bear a portion of the collective or systemic sins of our societies, like the collective sin of slavery or racism. I personally reject this notion and I think it comes from cultural Marxism. What do you think? Yeah, I think that's about right. You sin individually. That's how you sin. You're not responsible for somebody else's sin. You sin individually. Now, we all bear original sin, which is what happened when our first father, Adam, sinned, and sin and death pervaded the world. And that is just the world in which we live now. We are tainted by that. But the sins that we commit are our own problems. This idea of corporate sin, this idea that, you know, look, I don't need to worry so much about my sins, but I am responsible for my great-great-great-great-granddaddy's friend who owned a slave. Uh, that is, I think, actually another form of pride. It's a way of saying, I don't need to focus on my own sins. I need to worry about somebody else's sins a long time ago who wasn't me, but I'm, res- I'm such a good person that I'll bear some responsibility for that. That's an, an inversion of the reality of our relationship to sin, and we should focus on the man in the mirror. From Jay, most esteemed and knowledgeable Knowles, I was raised as a non-believer and became virulently anti-theist, but eventually, listening to all of you, as well as other apologists, I came to believe I had been wrong. I now consider myself a Christian, but I have not yet chosen a church. I hope to choose between the big three, Catholicism, Protestantism, and Orthodoxy. Uh, What pulled you toward the Catholic Church? Was it solely family background, or was there more to it for you? No, it was not solely family background. I was a cradle Catholic, and then I fell away for 10 years. Actually, when I reverted to the church, I was initially attracted by Protestants, by evangelicals, and by Calvinists, even, and by, you know, uh, versions and denominations of uh, Christianity that I don't really agree with anymore, but they helped to bring me in. And then I arrived back at the Catholic Church because I think the historical claims of the Catholic Church are true. And I found it to be a little strange that virtually every Christian uh, for all of history believed basically the exact same thing until about the 16th century. And then even around that time, all the major Uh, Protestant thinkers, Martin Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, Wesley, uh, these guys believed uh, many things that would now be called almost exclusively Catholic. For instance, in the perpetual virginity of Mary, which all all of them believed. And Calvin said there wasn't enough evidence on either side of the question, but they all uh, accepted as uh, possible, if not probable. Um, even back then, and then this is branched out. So for the big three, you're going to face another big problem, which is that the big three are actually two, and then like 30,000, because obviously Protestantism is not one unified church, but it's, I think it's about 30,000 denominations. So, so I guess 30,002 are your choices. Uh, but I think that the historical claims of the church are true. The Catholic church, I think that, uh, you know, uh, Christ built his church upon that rock of Peter. And I think that he gave Peter the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever he binds on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever he looses on earth will be loosed in heaven. He breathed on the apostles, gave them the Holy Spirit and the power to forgive sins and whose sins they forgive are forgiven and whose sins they retain are retained. And on a broader level, I think that that sacrament, that sacramental nature of the church is very important. The church is incarnational. It's not just in our minds. We can't just live stream the church forever. We have to engage in the sacraments really. And the the clearest form of that is the blessed sacrament, which is the unity of heaven and earth, the unity of the physical and the metaphysical. It's, uh, it is the host that becomes literally the body and blood of Christ. From Reeve, greetings to the least execrable Michael Knowles I know. I'm 16 and currently attending college. I'm a very motivated person usually, but lately my motivation has been in rapid decline, especially during school. As someone who has done a lot of work in life, can you give any insight in how to rekindle motivation. Yes, I can do that. Uh, This happens to everybody. It doesn't matter how motivated you are. When you get off your rhythm, you can get depressed, you can get sluggish, you stop doing things. You have to recognize that there is a, a purpose, 
okay, a purpose to your life, a purpose to this week, a purpose to this day, a purpose to the thing that you're working on. You only have so many minutes. You are going to die someday and you are going to be held accountable for what you did with the time that you have. If that's not a motivating factor, I don't know what could be. Before we go, I want to get down to a question that someone emailed in. This is from Maddie. And it's an important question because I, I've heard this crop up a few times. Uh, Maddie asks, Michael, there is one pro-choice argument that I've had trouble articulating a response to. Bill Nye says, Bill Nye, you know, that brilliant theologian, not only not a theologian, also not a scientist, but Bill Nye says, a lot of men of European descent are passing reproductive laws based on ignorance. Many, many more eggs are fertilized than become humans. Eggs get, or get fertilized. Sperm get accepted by ova a lot, but that's not all you need. How does an em- the early embryo mortality and the fact that the design of our bodies seems to not value a fertilized egg fit in with what I believe, which is that life begins at conception when a unique set of DNA is formed? Thanks. There's a difference between natural death and murder, is the answer. That's how. E- everybody dies eventually. That doesn't mean it's okay to murder people. Because you could just reframe the question and say, you know, I was looking around and I found out that everybody dies. So how do I reconcile my belief that it's bad to murder people with the obvious point that nature doesn't care about that because everybody dies? Right, because there's a difference between the things that happen in nature and the moral order, right? So there's a, a difference between the natural fact of our death and decay and the moral question of whether I will hasten that decay and I will attack somebody else. I also love that Bill Nye says, he singles out white men for some reason. He says a lot of European, men of European descent are passing these laws. First of all, uh, 50% of pro-life people are women, but Bill Nye is a man of European descent and he's passing, he's, he's saying a lot of things that are coming from ignorance as well. So I would just point out that the facts of the natural world are are not prescriptive necessarily in the moral order. Right? We see plenty of things. Rape, rape and killing and pillaging and burning happens in the natural world all the time. Doesn't make it a good thing. All right, that's our show. How's that for an uncontroversial statement to end on? It's bad to murder. <laughs> okay, uh, we've got so much more to do, but we'll just have to see you on Monday. Unless you listen to the Ben Shapiro show today on radio, I'm going to be filling in for that. Maybe we'll have some verdict with Ted Cruz come out this weekend. Look, we got a lot of stuff on the horizon. In the meantime, I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. If you enjoyed this episode, and frankly, even if you didn't, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, The Andrew Clavin Show, and The Matt Walsh Show. The Michael Knowles Show is produced by Ben Davies and directed by Mike Joyner. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Supervising producers, Mathis Glover and Robert Sterling. Technical producer, Austin Stevens. Assistant director, Pavel Widowski. Editor and associate producer, Danny D'Amico. Audio mixer, Robin Fenderson. Hair and makeup, Nika Geneva, production assistant, Ryan Love. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2020. You're about to hear a clip from the new Starbucks versus Dunkin' season of Business Wars. But before that, make sure to subscribe to Business Wars and other great podcasts from Wondery on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. It's 1950 in Quincy, Massachusetts. At 6 a.m. on a cool September morning, a big, genial man named Bill Rosenberg opens his store's glass door. He calls a place Open Kettle. It's the first donut and coffee shop ever to provide seats for its customers. A group of men wait outside, eager for their morning java. Some are factory workers. Others are salesmen and businessmen. The first to hurry in wears heavy pants and a work shirt. Morning, Bill. Hey, Marty, ready for the usual? You bet. Coffee with two sugars and two glazed donuts. Gotta have it to start my day. Rosenberg turns to two men who sport suits, ties, and hats. Morning, guys. 
Hey, Bill. Know what? Your coffee smells so good it wakes me up before I've had a sip. The men sit at the low curved counter on leather top stools. Rosenberg goes behind the counter. He smiles as he fills their cups with the drink they crave. As soon as their cups are empty, he fills them up again. Above the pot, a wall sign reads, Ours is the best coffee in the world. Every morning, his shop fills up like this, and it never fails to make him smile. He heads into the kitchen. He loves watching the donut dough cook in the fryer's bubbling oil. When they turn golden brown, cooks whisk them from the fryer with giant spoons. He savors the donut's rich, yeasty fragrance as they cool on metal racks. Beside the racks, deep bowls are filled with frosting in vanilla, chocolate, strawberry, and maple flavors. Rosenberg grabs a tablespoon and digs out a taste of strawberry icing, his favorite. Dozens of donuts are iced. Others are dipped in powdered sugar and shot full of cream. Many are stuffed with jelly and succulent flavors. Lemon, blueberry, pineapple, apple spice. Rosenberg picks up a jelly donut. As he bites into it, a big magenta blob squirts onto his shirt. He laughs, wipes it off, and licks it from his finger. There's just one thing about his store that he doesn't like. He calls his staff together. We're doing great, but I hate the name of the store. You're the one who named it Open Kettle. True, true, I'll take the blame. But we need another name. Throw out anything that comes to mind. How about Mr. Donut? Our best donuts. Maybe, maybe, I feel like we could do better. I got it. What do you do with a donut and coffee? You dunk the donut. That's it. Dunkin' Donuts. Yeah, it's got a nice ring to it. But coffee is Rosenberg's true love. To prove it, the big news sign outside his store reads, Dunkin' Donuts, the world's finest coffee. Like every dedicated coffee purveyor who will follow him, Bill Rosenberg is passionate about brewing the perfect cup an eighth grade dropout, Rosenberg would teach the average Joe to take their cup of Joe more seriously in America. Decades in the future, that passion will take his company where he never imagined it would go, head-to-head with a cross-country rival that becomes a global juggernaut. Starbucks Coffee, Tea, and Spice opens in 1971 in a small store in Seattle's historic Pike Place Market. The store is designed to look slightly nautical. A long wall with wooden shelves displays 30 different kinds of coffee. They sell only coffee beans and the best home coffee machines. But they sometimes offer samples, served in porcelain cups that make the coffee taste even better. Seattle is in an economic downturn, but Starbucks catches on. It's a hit with Seattle citizens who love the idea of savoring their coffee at home, especially on those gloomy days in winter. And Starbucks is the only place in Seattle that offers quality coffee. It catches the attention of a young 28-year-old. From the moment he encounters Starbucks, he and the entire business will never be the same. His name is... That was just a preview of the first episode of Starbucks vs. Duncan on Business Wars. Subscribe to hear the rest on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now.